Welcome to Educate with Dr. Jefferson, the talk show that makes the connections between research, policies, and practitioners that are too often missing from the American education system. Now, here's your host, Dr. Jonathan Jefferson. Good day, listeners. Welcome to Educate with Dr. Jefferson. I am your host, Jonathan Jefferson. You can learn more about me at my show page on TalkZone.com. Today, our topic is Instruction That Works. On this show, we have discussed many topics in education. The purpose of education is to educate, to take a student from a place of not knowing to a place of knowing. There are many approaches to this task of educating, but they are not all created equal. In fact, they do not all result in the acquisition of knowledge. In last month's issue of Educational Leadership, that's October of 2014, researchers submitted articles on the topic of instruction that sticks. Today, I am going to share with you a few of those articles, and at the bottom of the hour, one of the researchers, Dr. Henry L. Rudiger III, will join us. The first article I'd like to discuss with you is titled Strategies That Make Learning Last by Daniel T. Willingham. Daniel T. Willingham is a professor and director of graduate studies in the Department of Psychology at the University of Virginia. He's the author of When Can You Trust the Experts? How to Tell Good Science from Bad in Education. Now, Mr. Willingham starts his article by stating, Students typically rely on four study strategies that don't work. He then shares four that actually do. Now, first I'm going to read to you strategies that many students use and many of us listening have used and may still use before we go on to uh, what the research shows is more effective. And I quote, and many of the statements I'm making, I'm quoting directly from the article. Like I said, the article is from Professor Willingham. So I quote, First, he reads the assigned chapter, trying to understand individual sentences as he goes, but not necessarily ensuring he's got the overall, overall gist. Second, as he reads, he marks what he takes to be important points with a highlighter. Third, he doesn't look at the chapter again until a day or two before the test. Fourth, in preparation for the test, he rereads the chapter, focusing on, on what he highlighted earlier. Now, many of us, myself included, use these same exact four strategies. First, we read. As we're reading, we highlight what we believe is important, and we don't really go back to reread it until it's time for a test. You know, we go back, and when we, when we reread, we reread what we thought, um, when we highlighted was the most important components for the exam. So that is typical of students, but that is not necessarily what's most effective. In fact, uh, Professor Willingham states, most students go to, most students go to strategy is rereading. As we'll see, rereading provides a relatively weak boost to memory compared with other study techniques they might use but it helps enough that students can squeak by on an exam. In one experiment, college students took the final exam for their course, and then three days later took a different final exam that wouldn't count toward their grade. 
Students averaged 74% correct on the real final exam, but in three days they forgot so much that they scored on average just 29%. No wonder then that teachers so often see blank faces when they mention a concept that a colleague assured them was covered the previous year. Now, in this example, only three days had passed from when the test was originally given, and you see a significant drop in the information that the students retained when they retook the test. Why? Because they're using the age-old strategies, including cramming, right before the test. Good enough to pass the test, but not good enough for retention, not good enough for mastery. Now, Professor Willingham gives four methods or four good ways to learn uh, that would be more effective than cramming or using a traditional method. Uh, method number one, he calls elaborative, elaborative interrogation and self-explanation. With elaborative interrogation, you periodically consider the relationship between, between what you're reading and what you already know. With self-explanation, you periodically say every few paragraphs, explain to yourself why assertions in the text are justified. So that's strategy number one, elaborative interrogation and self-explanation. Strategy number two, distributed practice. Let me give some examples. Cramming practice into the hours right before his test is actually an effective strategy provided you don't care that you'll swiftly forget what you've learned. I mentioned that before. You can study or restudy right, be right before an exam and do pretty well. However, are you going to retain that information later? Research shows that you will not. Instead, distributed practice is more effective. Let me give you an example. Everyone practiced the procedure 10 times, but some students got all 10 problems at once, whereas others got five problems on each of two occasions, separated by one-week delay. When everyone was tested a week after they had practiced, all were equally successful in solving the problems with the procedure, getting about 70% of the problems right. But when tested again three weeks later, those who had all, all their practice jammed together got, on average, just 32% correct, whereas those who, whose practice was divided into two sessions showed much better recall, scoring, on average, 64% correct. So clearly, the strategies being, the, these first strategies that were shared by Professor Willingham uh, are much more lasting, much more effective. So once again, those two so far are elaborative interrogation and self-explanation. And number two, distributed practice. Strategy number three, interleaved practice. Now, I know some of these terms sound odd, uh, but keep in mind that uh, these journals are often written by researchers and research lingo um, uh, for people in the field who, who are going to try to apply it. Uh, but it's not, not easy to grasp once you hear the explanation. Uh, interleaved practice. Suppose a student plans to spend an hour studying Spanish vocabulary on a particular night. Would it be better for her to study an individual word until she feels she's mastered it or mix up the word list? It seems intuitive that it's better to study the whole list rather than focus on one word at a time. 
This strategy is called interleaving, and it applies not just to a single list, but to broader principles as well. Now, as obvious as this principle seems, it's seldom observed in science and math textbooks. For example, if I'm studying um, basic math, let's say uh, arithmetic, uh, let's say addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division, often if you're in a textbook, one chapter will be devoted to addition, another chapter to subtraction, et cetera, et cetera. And then at the end of this, chapter, all of the work that you're doing would be based on that one chapter, which is simply arithmetic or simple uh, addition. And the next champ- chapter, all of the work you're doing at the end of the chapter would be subtraction. And then, you know, division and then multiplication. Now, that may be an easy and, and sound like a logical way to set up a book and to set up practice. However, research shows that it would be better to mix your practice so that you're learning both addition and subtraction and multiplication and division together so that when you are tested, you are going to have more strategies to to pull on because you're going to have more algorithms um, that you have practiced. So, yes, it's harder to learn it um, by doing them all together, just like it's harder to uh, learn language by studying several uh, vocabulary words at one time. However, when it's time to apply it, you have many more strategies to pull on. You have many more, in the case of math, algorithms that you can choose from, and it's a more lasting way of learning. So interleaving practice, interleaved practice, may up front sound more difficult, but in the long run, it's much more effective. So that's the third strategy. The fourth strategy that Professor Willingham brings up is practice testing or quizzing. Um, Study after study shows that taking a brief quiz is better for memory than rereading. The largest benefit to memory occurs when the student gets immediate corrective feedback. But even if there's no feedback and even if the student fails to remember the answer, the quiz is still better for memory than rereading. Now, let me give you a, a great example of this. It it mentions that immediate feedback is what's most effective. Well, scientists about a decade ago, maybe a little more, found that what makes video games so addicting is is because they have four components built into every video game. These components include you enter at a level that you're comfortable with, you get immediate feedback when you make a mistake, Third component is that uh, there's a level of mastery to be attained. And um, actually, now I, I just lost my train of thought, but, but go back to number two. You get immediate feedback. So when, you, when your avatar in a video game uh, is destroyed or, or in most of these shoot-up games, they're shot and killed, um, you know immediately the mistake you made that caused your avatar to lose a turn or your avatar to be destroyed or killed. You learn immediately. Uh, in traditional education, too often, you don't get that immediate feedback. And this is what quizzes will provide, that immediate corrective feedback. So taking, uh, studying something one day or learning something one day 
taking a test a few days later and not getting results back from that test until after the weekend or a week later or for some of these state tests, you never get the results back. Um, that doesn't benefit learning. Okay, immediate feedback, corrective feedback is what best benefits learning. So all of this information and this research was shared once again by Professor Daniel T. Willingham, who is a professor at the University of Virginia, and uh, Professor Willingham did reply to me that um, he's overwhelmed right now with the responsibilities with the university and beyond, so he wasn't able to come on to the show. Um, however, his article, I thought, was, and his research and his presentation was excellent, and anybody who's really into helping students learn how to learn, knowing what the best practices for learning are, these are the things that you need to, this is the information you need. Much more important and much more impactful uh, than many of the other subjects we, we tackle. Now, all of these subjects that we tackled are important. But when it comes down to the X's and O's, having your child enter school with one set of, of uh, knowledge and, and, and exiting with a greater set of knowledge, that is what education is ultimately all about. Um, at this time, we're going to take a short break. But stay tuned. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome back to Educate on Talk Zone. Here's Dr. Jonathan Jefferson. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back to the show and our discussion of the important topic, instruction that works. If you'd like to join our conversation, the phone lines are open, 888-463-6748. That's 888-463-6748. We're taking your calls on TalkZone. Now, at the, at the beginning of the show, um, I mentioned the fact that we're going to look at a couple of articles from Educational Leadership, which is a journal um, in the field of education where um, researchers, usually at the university level, uh, present their research in journal format for practitioners all over the world to uh, see what's cutting edge and what actually works. And last month's issue of Educational Leadership, October 2014, included uh, a slew of excellent articles um, under their title, Instruction That Sticks. For the purposes of my show, we're calling it Instruction That Works. The first article that we went over, or the first article I shared, was Strategies That Make Learning Last by Daniel T. Willingham, a professor at the University of Virginia. This next article that I'm going to share is titled Reading Moves, What Not to Do by Richard L. Allington. Richard L. Allington is a professor of education at the University of Tennessee and past president of the International Reading Association and the National Reading Conference. Now, at the beginning of his article, he states, in almost every early elementary classroom, you'll see students reading aloud and answering questions about what they've read. It's time for that to change. So move number one, remember the name of this article, Reading Moves, What Not to Do. So move number one, what not to do, overusing and misusing oral reading. By doing so, we end up creating two types of learners. Uh, one learner, or excuse me, two types of readers. 
One reader is your good reader, and the other reader is your struggling reader. I'm going to share an example uh, that Professor Allington shares in his article. Um, this is two readers, two different readers, and how the teacher responds to these particular readers. Reader number one, good reader. John went to the stone. Teacher, after the sentence is completed, does that make sense to you? The student then reread the sentence, correcting his mistake. Now, consider what happens when a struggling reader misread the same sentence. Struggling reader. John walked. Teacher, interrupting and pointing at the word went. Look at the vowel in that word, states the teacher. This interruption led to a bit of unsuccessful word work by the student followed by the teacher pronouncing the word for him. The student then continued to read. Here's the struggling reader. To the story. Teacher, that E is a silent E. Try it again. In other words, the struggling reader receives a lot of interruptions by the teacher and a lot of the teacher giving them the corrections. And this results in the following. Good readers self-regulate, and struggling readers who stop after almost every word and look up at their teacher for a cue. So in other words, it's better for students to self-regulate. It's better for students to check themselves in order to become confident and, and good readers. Now, I'm going to share some of the um, practices that can be used that will better impact students in general. And once again, this is coming directly, and I'm quoting directly from Richard L. Arlington's article, Reading Moves, What Not to Do. Refining Oral Reading Practice. To avoid the harm inherent in the overuse and misuse of oral reading practice, consider the following recommendations. Use oral reading selectively. By the middle of first grade, most reading should be done silently. If you elect to have students read a text aloud, Consciously bite your tongue as they read. Wait until the student has completed at least a full sentence before you interrupt, and then interrupt with a comment that encourages the student to self-regulate. Ensure that other students who might be following along or listening to the student read aloud also do not interrupt the reader. If you're concerned that you cannot monitor the accuracy of students reading when they read silently, Remember that all you really need to do is ask them to retell what they've read. Misreadings become obvious during retelling. So ultimately what Professor Allington is telling us to do is allow students to make those mistakes. They have the information and the knowledge. Give them time to reread and, and self-correct as opposed to constantly interrupting them. And he's used, and he's giving examples for teachers. That's why he's telling teachers, bite your tongue, hold it in. As much as you want to interrupt, let them go through that struggle and self-correct. Now, remember the title of the article again, Reading Moves, What Not to Do. Move number two, what not to do. Asking low-level questions. I actually love this segment of this particular article because the, the examples are so Pointed and it just makes you smack your head and say, "Why in the world do we keep doing certain, you know, certain things?" So uh, this is called the need for literate conversation. 
Imagine that you're sitting in a coffee shop one morning reading the local newspaper when a friend walks in and asks, Have you read the story about the tornado in Johnsonville? You respond, Yes, I just finished it. If your friend were then to subject you to the sort of low-level questions found in most reading series, what was the fire chief's name? What color was the car that was destroyed? You would probably look at her somewhat grumpily and wonder what was wrong with her. Instead, your friend would be more likely to ask something along the lines of, that tornado was terrible, wasn't it? You might respond, yes, it was a miracle that nobody was killed. Your friend might respond with a comment about the article's assessment of Johnsonville's emergency alert system, and thus the literate conversation would begin. So pretty much what they're getting at is that, you know, when you look at it and you look at the questions that we've been asking, what color is the car, you know, what's the chief's name, that's low level and it really doesn't get into depth. Engaging students in literate conversations with their peers is a powerful instructional strategy for fostering both short and long-term reading comprehension. In a study of high-poverty schools, Taylor and colleagues found that more effective teachers asked five times as many high-order questions and offered twice as many opportunities for discussion as less effective teachers. Now, with this, with this uh, world of high accountability that we are in and with high-stakes testing, teachers are now graded on their effectiveness from ineffective to highly effective. And therefore, knowing this research and knowing these studies and knowing what's effective is very important to teachers, just primarily to save their their jobs and for principals as well. Now, writing after reading, holding classroom conversations about text that students have read and responding to higher-order questions are all linked to higher student achievement. So, once again, these are some of the many strategies uh, that can be applied to improve uh, reading. So you've learned what not to do, and you've seen some strategies on what to do. Now, the last thing I'll share with you uh, before we uh, break at the bottom of this hour so we can go on to our guest speaker, the last thing I want to share for teachers is to get students, especially young students, to learn to uh, actually share um, and, and get into conversation, especially when we're talking about first, second graders, you can try the strategy of turn, pair, and share. Have students turn to one another, give one a turn for a minute to talk about what they just read, give another one a turn to talk about what they just read, and then give them an opportunity to share with the group. It takes practice, but over time you can increase the sizes of the groups and increase the conversations. Okay, we have discussed two articles involving instruction that works. Strategies that make learning last by Daniel T. T. Willingham and Reading Moves, What Not to Do by Richard L. Allington. Stay tuned as my next guest discusses with us The Science of Successful Learning, which is also the title of his article in Educational Leadership. 